Welcome to the podcast series of Global Shapers Thessaloniki Hub for the Davos Dialogue Initiative. In this episode, we're discussing net zero. Okay, so welcome, welcome everyone. Um, my name is Andreas. I'm the impact officer of uh, the Global Shapers Hub here in Thessaloniki. I would like to, to welcome you, uh, all of you, in our Davos Dialogue Net Zero um, topic. So, Yanni, if you can introduce uh, yourself. Sure. So, welcome everyone to the Davos Lab. My name is Yanis. I'm uh, 19 and a half years old. I'm an undergraduate student of computer science, and I'm really, really glad for discussing about such an important topic, net zero. So why don't we let our guests introduce themselves as well? Lukina, please. Thank you. Um, so my name is Lukina. I'm 19 years old, and I live in Switzerland. I will start my studying uh, in September and I will start political science. And out of that, I've been active in the climate movement, but since a year, I'm more active in um, different initiatives. Uh, I'm part of something which is called the Catalyst Lab, which is a program proposed by Collaborazio Helvetica, basically to foster the implementation of this SDGs in Switzerland through collaborative and social innovation processes. So that's a bit where I stand at the moment. Good. Thank you. Um, I'm Dimitris. I am uh, 35 years old. I'm based uh, in Athens and Thessaloniki. I'm currently with uh, Net2Grid, the Dutch company, as the, the company's uh, chief information officer, but as well as the country manager for the Greek branch we have in Thessaloniki. My background is in electrical engineering. I have a master's in the University of Edinburgh and a PhD from the University of Thessaloniki here together with uh, doing my PhD studies together with ABB, uh, the Swedish company. And uh, during the last years that I am with uh, NetGrid, we are doing a lot of work and a lot of R&D uh, around energy efficiency, informing end users about their consumption and trying to help them understand things in a more thorough way. And then, of course, let them allow them to reduce their consumption and change their habits for a more sustainable, let's say, future. So that's why I am. Nice. Thank you both for uh, introducing uh, yourselves. It's uh, really an honor to have you to have you both. So let's uh, dive into our topic. So net zero. Over 119 governments promised to undertake policies that limit global heating to 1.5 degrees Celsius, beyond which scientists believe devastating climate impacts could spiral out of control in the, in the 2015 Paris Agreement. To reach this goal, annual global greenhouse gas emissions, such as carbon dioxide, must fall by half from today by 2030, a decrease of 7.6% every single year. To put this goal into perspective, in 2020, greenhouse, global greenhouse gas emissions fell roughly 7% due to the pandemic shock. Emissions reductions, of course, must not come at the expense of livelihoods. However, this rate of reduction does demonstrate the scale of the challenge before us. So I would like to, to ask you both, should governments and investors ensure fossil fuels stay in the ground and instead switch to clean energy to meet growing energy demand? Even if so, how? Lukina, 
So regarding first question, yes, I think they should definitely make sure that uh, we are not digging for more fossil fuels because as the science is quite clear now, we have very few carbon budget left and the temp temperature has already risen from like 1.5, uh, 1.2 degrees, sorry. Um, which means that it's quite clear that we have to phase out from fossil fuel. So for, for me, like that's quite obvious. But then the question on how we achieve that, well, on, on the one hand, as you, as you mentioned, the investors I've just read an article today in The Guardian that, in fact, in 2020, we reduced a lot of the emissions. But I would say it's not really climate action because it's sort of a byproduct of the pandemic. But then um, it, it happened that the emissions just um, fell. But we observed that in 2021, it just came out in the energy report from the, how is it called, the energy agency, that, in fact, we are going to see a rise in the temperature, um, in the emissions right now because every sector has been um, getting some incentives and it's just starting again to, to emit a lot. So that's sort of um, a backlash of this reduction we, we've seen last year. And that's quite concerning because it means that uh, governments at least and, um, and uh, I mean companies, etc., have to make this green, well, they call it the Green New Deal. So this whole green transition and investment uh, clear and and oriented towards um, renewable and re renewable sources of energy, I would say. Yeah, what, what do you think, uh, Dimitrios, on, on that mm -hmm. topic? Yeah, good. I mean, if we have to switch from fossil fuels to something else that is more green and more sustainable, yes, definitely. Uh, are we in a position to do something like that right now? I'm afraid no, and uh, there are still some obstacles and some barriers that we need to, to overcome during the next uh, years uh, in order to be in such a position. Um, of course, there is some progress. We have more and more investments and more and more uh, installations of renewables uh, globally, especially wind and PV. And that's something that uh, came as a result of uh, their prices going down during the last years. An investment in this direction was a more profitable one for investors and for countries and for utilities. So that's why we are in such a position right now. But of course, there is still a lot of uh, way, a lot of, you know, uh, a lot of effort needed in this uh, direction in order for us to achieve such a result. There are some technical barriers that we need to, to take into account that, uh, for, for example, traditionally, when we had uh, big oil or coal or gas uh, units, these are installations that uh, are in a specific location and can at the same time cover the demand of uh, thousands of end users. They're strategically located close to big city centers just because of that. And if we switch to some wind farms being installed here and there and some PV installations and some solar and some biomass or whatever, siting and transmission is an important uh, factor here. So we need, we need at the same time uh, make uh, investments uh, in, in such installations at places that the potential is great. But we also need to take into account that we need somehow to connect those installations with the big demand, with big city centers in order for this energy to be consumed, which comes with cost, with additional cost. And by means of cost, I'm not saying only about how much a wind from costs, but how much additional cables and transmission lines and transmission lines would cost in order for this energy that is produced somewhere in an island, maybe, or offshore, to be transmitted in Athens or in a big city or in Thessaloniki or wherever. These are important topics that we need to address. 
And another technical factor that we also need to, to consider is that by default, the grid as, as we know it nowadays is not ready or was not built in the beginning to be able to, to be injected by energy that's produced in a lot of different spots in the grid, which raises reliability issues, uh, maintainability issues, and other technical concerns that we need to, to take seriously into account. And of course, utilities together with governments and policymakers need to, to invest in extra infrastructure in order for the grid to be able to host such renewables. There are other things I have in my mind, but I don't, I don't want to use so, them. So it, it's really a matter of deciding on the new direction and committing to the new direction because it does not only involve cost in matters of creating new distributed plants, but because of the fact that renewable, renewable energy installations are by definition in distributed areas, they exist where renewable resources are. We also need to consider the cost, both in terms of money, but and also in terms of the societies affected, the local sites affected, in terms of um, the transmission of the, the kind of, uh, of energy. Yeah. But at the same time, we are seeing new investments on natural gas, on, on coal. So at the one hand, we are bombarded by new policies that we need to address the decarbonization of our uh, energy production. But on the other hand, new plants are continuing to, to be installed. Um, do you want to, to go on or look now? You want to add something? Yeah, I'm, I may have two points. The, the first one, um, I, was, I was thinking on the, on the Swiss situation because here we produce uh, 60% of our energy from um, hydro, hydraulic, so from water. Uh, basically, we take the energy from water to create energy. So that's already renewable. And on the other hand, we have 33% coming from um, a nuclear power plants. And the population decided some years ago that they want to phase out from nuclear uh, power plants energy systems which now is being questioned again in the sense of, as it's not uh, high emitting of CO2, does it make sense to already transition from nuclear power plant on the short term and still have gas and, and coal, um, coal and, and oil? Or should we you know, instead uh, stay with those power plants for a bit longer? And then um, just because there is such this urge of stopping the, the CO2 emissions, so to say. So I think that's also a question which is quite, complicated to address because it's it's always these questions of decision which sector of or how do we provide the energy uh, we are using and then regarding what you just mentioned uh, andreas i think it's also coming from a lack of framework or maybe uh, yeah boundaries or limitations that government can still go on and plan some new endless project i mean we've seen that with the uh, australian government and the adani power plants or I mean, that's one example. And I think it's also come from the fact that as this contract can still be signed in today's system, and there is no way to, to have this paper signed and then unsign it, so to say. So we are keep we keep signing those uh, new projects. And and even though they are not aligned neither with the Paris Agreement, neither with the 1.5 degrees target, in fact. So so I think there is a lack there of um, of structure and international cooperation as well, because if one country uh, commits to that, then they are just sort of left alone as, as well on the economical level. And that's very complicated, I guess. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
that, that's a good point. What I could add here is that renewables, uh, most of the time, uh, come with some kind of uh, unpredictability. So you cannot always rely on them by 100% or even by 80 or 70% to cover the demand in a country or in a city because you might have no sun and no wind at all uh, during the day and somehow you need to cover your demand. Of course, there is a risk with renewables. The more renewable plants that you have and the more uh, dispersed and distributed are within a large location, within a large uh, space, like a whole country, of course, you reduce this risk because you should expect to have some kind of wind or sun uh, somewhere in your country. We will be able to come in a position to, to support the whole demand uh, with renewables by 100% continuously and without uh, uh, being afraid that at some point we are not going to be able to cover the demand. If we have different kinds of, uh, if we have, let's say, the right recipe, and the right recipe depends on the location itself. Uh, in Greece, for example, we have great wind potential in the islands and great solar because, uh, because of the sun. Other countries benefit from other sources. When we find the right recipe and the right and cost-efficient ways to implement it and maybe combine it with energy storage in order to have that as a backup plan in case of uh, not being able to produce enough energy, then we could be able to phase out not only uh, nuclear but uh, stop using uh, coal, uh, gas, oil or whatever. I, I think though, and uh, this is uh, probably this is a reality we will have in the next years, that the role of gas will still remain important. Uh, some uh, people even call it the transition fuel because, yes, coal and oil are being abandoned, but gas, because of a lot of technical reasons and because of its lower emissions, it is supposed to be a less polluting uh, fuel than the others, will be here to stay with us to support the base load and the base consumption that we need in any case to cover at any time, and uh, by uh, as we evolve and as uh, progress is being made in other renewables and trying to find the correct combination of those uh, products, then of course fossil fuels will eventually stop uh, existing at all. We do not have to forget though the factor of cost and the factor of what can a, a country uh, do with uh, its own resources. Greece has been traditionally really uh, strong with coal because we have a lot of coal in Greece. And that was the, the straightforward solution for us uh, to cover our demand uh, some years back. And at the same time, we do not have hydro like Switzerland. We do not have so much water. For example, Norway, uh, I think they cover almost 90% of their consumption just because of hydro, uh, hydro which is 100% renewable, no pollution. It is great. But not anyone has the same potential and the same resources available for them. And, and also, uh, some countries are highly dependent on the fossil fuel sources. And as, uh, as to take into account the equity principle, I mean, it's for some countries who are completely depending on it and get lots of money out of it. It's also um, yeah, a, a huge challenge, I think, to phase out from, from fossil fuels, generally speaking. And some countries, it's easier from, than from, from others. And, and yeah, and I don't know if you've heard of the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty. 
it's it's a treat I'm, I'm working on the, at the moment, which is basically ad addressing directly that question on how to plan this uh, phase out of the fossil fuel industry on an international scale. So how do we have help from one country to the other and how do we cooperate globally to to do that? Because, it, yeah, as I mentioned before, it's never the case that one country will just say, no, I go out and then. Exactly uh, on that, on what uh, Lukina mentioned. And coming back to my first comment about uh, the need for transmission and interconnection, there is a big, a huge project between uh, Norway and Germany uh, because of that. They are installing a huge uh, submarine cable that connects both countries and uh, will be there in order for Germany to uh, inject energy being produced by uh, hydro from Norway when they cannot cover their demand themselves uh, with their renewables uh, because they stopped their nuclear plants and their uh, coal and whatever. So if we want to support each other and a country to support a, a neighboring country with uh, excess of green energy that is produced somewhere but is not available somewhere else, we will have to build interconnectors and lines that are connecting uh, countries or bigger regions with each other in order for, you know, for the countries to be able to share energy that was produced in green in a green way instead of simply you know turning on your coal uh, plant and produce energy yourself so i would like to add actually i would like to continue our discussion uh, here in greece with uh, uh, saying some words about the huge investment of uh, 300 million uh, euros of a natural gas plant in uh, the region in greece along with the uh, greek uh, government so they claim that uh, this will the power of this the, of the whole plant will account for 50% of the existing coal plants so that's a huge decrease of co2 emissions and i would like to ask you both since this is natural gas it's not sustainable obviously is this a step in the right direction from the government's perspective we talked about transition of uh, coal plants etc to sustainable energy but there's uh, some steps in between. Is natural gas uh, a good step and the right step, let's say? Yeah, I I don't, I can't answer that question, to be honest, because I haven't done research on it, so I, I cannot have a clear opinion on that. Um, so let, let me help here. I think that it, it's a good decision, or at least it's, it's a realistic decision, because in the meantime, before being able to support your whole demand with renewables and green energy, you need somehow to, to support your consumers, to support your industry, and do that in a really cost-efficient way. Uh, if you want to rely only on other uh, expensive uh, means of uh, electricity production, then of course all this cost will have to go eventually to the end user, to the consumers, and uh, that's something that you cannot do, especially in Greece, especially nowadays. So you need to come up with a realistic, less uh, polluting plan in the next uh, years before being ready to jump to a, a more green and a more sustainable uh, mix of your energy production. And and I think that uh, as uh, as you mentioned, uh, Dimitri, earlier, we need to have uh, some sort of a backbone energy production that should be as sustainable as possible and if we also account if we also take into account the fact that we will be more interconnected as countries in the future 
I think the, the ultimate goal would be for everyone to use renewable energy resources. But until we, go, until we, we get to that level, we, in, we interconnect our power grids. We have some countries with excess renewable, with excess energy produced by renewable sources to be transferred to countries that either have not uh, done enough in terms of uh, new plants, new uh, renewable resources plants, or they or they don't have the renewable resources. For example, there could be a country that uh, might not have that much sunshine for solar panels or uh, hydroelectric capacity. So it's like a, a stepping stone to our, towards our, our greater uh, greater goal. Well, sorry, sorry, Andrea, to add something that was related to what we discussed already, this specific uh, unit, this specific uh, gas uh, power plant that is to, to be installed in Viotia, if I'm right, is close to uh, big aluminum industries. That means that it's strategically located close to where huge demand uh, exists and is also located in a convenient position that could help with the existing infrastructure to transmit energy that is produced to big uh, city centers. So it, it's something that you need to consider. We cannot build, for example, such a power plant in an island because then you have uh, difficulties in connections, but you need to come up with, uh, it's a trade-off, right? There are pros and cons, and uh, I think it's, it's a good solution for the short term before us being ready in the long term to support uh, with renewables and energy storage and other more green uh, means uh, the whole demand. Sorry if I interrupted you. No, it's okay. So up, up until now, we discussed about the transition from fossil fuels to renewable energy sources. What are the key struggles, the key uh, obstacles that governments and countries may face? We talked about uh, the interconnection of uh, power grids between countries. And so we, we only discussed the reduction and the transition from fossil fuel to, re to renewable energy. But under our topic of uh, net zero, we also have to discuss, in my opinion, other ways in which we can actually lessen the impact uh, of, of carbon. So while we may produce greenhouse gas emissions, because we, we can't stop producing greenhouse gas emissions unless we stop every human activity right we also as as the technology improve as the technology improves we have to create ways in which to either decompose decompose the greenhouse gas emissions or capture the created gas emissions for long term storage or any other transformation so what's your opinion over that like carbon capture storage or I mean I think or, or sorry to interrupt you other ways of compensating for our uh, greenhouse gas emissions it well, could I, be I think... to create the more forests if that's uh, possible to create or to uh, I recently um, I'm currently reading a, a book it's called half earth and the main objective uh, of the of the book is to and propose a new system, and that is to devote half of the earth, half of the available land of the earth, to nature. And in that way, it would be easier to compensate for our emissions and our carbon-creating activities. So I'm looking for that kind of uh, activities and that kind of actions that could uh, take 
our impact on the environment back. I had a lecture on that topic at university uh, on Monday, in fact, and I think on the one hand, yes, it's, it's good to know that we have those technologies developing. On the other hand, I find very dangerous the rhetoric going on around them because it's it feels that it's going a lot in the direction of, oh, okay, we will have the technologies seeking the, the carbon out of the atmosphere for us, therefore we can keep emitting as usual. And that I found very complicated because it's very clear that we have to mitigate emissions and that the impact of CO2 on the climate system are like having huge impacts, especially like on, on different parts of the world at the moment. And um, it's already happening. So people are already like having uh, houses lost and uh, are getting threatened by the climate crisis. And from the point we go on, okay, we will just seek the carbon out of the atmosphere. I think that's quite dangerous because then it's, it take away the responsibility from us. And those, those technologies at the moment are not working on the large scale and there is no infrastructure to afford the transport of CO2 that then you have to bring to the point to put it in the ground or wherever you have to put it. And it's like huge amount we will have to seek out of the atmosphere where in fact, all energy, um, I mean, thinking energy or uh, all of this time and money that we are thinking on technologies, which we could, and in my opinion, should invest on, on mitigating in the first place uh, the emissions, because then we have to face the fact that we need systemic change in society in terms of how do we move, like mobility system is one point, energy system is another one, eating system uh, as well, like the whole food system. And, and I think those conversations are so crucial in today's society and I don't really hear them going on on the political level in terms of radical change is needed and we know it, it's, it's not a matter of opinion. It's quite clear that, I mean, the Arctic is melting. We've seen the rise of temperature going like quite crazy the last few months and all of that is clear. So I think it's gonna be, I see the solution as like a, a combination of all of those dimensions, but I truly not see the technologies as like the main part of the solution. Because I think that as a human system society made, uh, we are much more able in fact to address those questions also from from the, um, the capacity we have to adapt and change. Uh, because we made society, so why can't we change it in, in that sense? Yeah, that answered the question. That's quite yeah. large, but... Um, <laughs> no problem. Something that I believe we, we can do uh, right now without actually uh, needing to invest uh, a lot of money uh, is to improve our decision-making process by taking into account of more information that is, is available nowadays. Nowadays, more and more equipment, uh, more and more uh, devices generate data that I'm afraid that we simply store without actually making uh, the best, without actually using them uh, for, for a good reason. To give you an example, when someone, for example, has a Tesla, has an electric vehicle, because he supports electrification, transportation electrification, and he likes it. It's a big trend nowadays, especially in North European countries. He has his own car, and he has also some solar panels installed in his house. When he produces electricity during the day, he injects this electricity to the grid and he's being paid for that. When he wants to charge his car, he plugs in his car and he pays for the electricity he consumes in order for his car to be charged. So what we do, for example, that, that's a simple case study we are now supporting with, uh, with, my, with my team here at MetroGrid, is try to communicate with the people that 
look, if at the same time your solar panels produce electricity, you would be able, because you're working from home maybe, or because you're not using your car, use the electricity you produce in real time to charge your car, then there's a good benefit because you do not inject and you do not absorb electricity from the grid, which means that you don't have any kind of losses and things like that. These are small improvements that can be, let's say, 5% or 7% or 3% of uh, losses that were saved or of electricity cost that was uh, avoided. And uh, these are solutions that we can easily adapt, clever solutions, without having to invest uh, millions of euros that we can uh, adapt and we can apply even nowadays for, for the bigger benefit. The, there's a big problem nowadays in, in, in electricity grids with renewables and with electric vehicles. As I told you in the beginning of the presentation, those grids were not built in a way to be able to consume or inject electricity here and there without any control. And this is exactly what is happening nowadays with renewables and electric vehicles specifically. So one solution these utilities have is to invest some hundreds of millions of euros in extra infrastructure in order to upgrade their grid and make it able to, to deliver and to absorb, to cover the demand as it is now or as it will be in the future or apply more clever techniques and make actually the grid smarter, as it's a, another buzzword today, the smart grid, in order to be able to do things like that without having to invest or consume more electricity in this direction. So I think we can do a lot more, even nowadays, even yesterday, let's say, in the decision-making process, especially if we come up with some strategies that take into account different kinds of data that is available nowadays. And, and if I can build up on that, I, I totally agree. We can already do much more today if the will was there, I guess. And especially if, because governments are committing now to this net zero target in 2030, 2050, or whatever they say. Um, but it seems like very far away because somehow those politicians are not going to be politicians anymore in that time frame. And sec so it feels like, okay, in 2030, cool. And then, and then what is the plan until then? And I think it, would, it could be uh, very, very good to have some targets for every year, as like this year, this is, that, this is all of the small steps also, um, Dimitrios, that you talked about, uh, which are small, but already making some changes and actually really move on every year because if you want to reach those net zero by 2030, it has to happen already today. It's not going to be that in 2027, you say, oh, <laughs> the target, let's do something. It has to be a, a linear decrease as well. Yeah, and that I think could really help as well. So I would like to take the lead here. And since uh, Dr. Dukas uh, talked about individuals, cars, uh, electric cars specifically, and uh, housing in general, and uh, by reading an article of uh, carbonbrief.org on 2020's uh, CO2 emissions, it showed that the power plants in general account for 44% of CO2 emissions, even though we don't have uh, much of traveling, etc. But still, it's almost half of the CO2 emissions. And since uh, the cost plays a vital role in terms of investments towards sustainable energy and more green power, I would like to ask you both, uh, since cost is that effective on decision-making, should 
is it better to invest on something we know that has a very big percentages of CO2 emissions or should we just go to the other way which is individual people I think uh, this uh, this concern of individuals and their responsibility is a big trend nowadays also because of uh, covid and because of uh, people definitely uh, being asked to be responsible for their actions for the common uh, good but the, the way we, we see it and the way i saw it specifically uh, within metrogrid but also uh, during my studies is that most of the end users most of the consumers care about the money that will be asked to pay uh, at the end of the month care about their bill uh, there are of course uh, uh, bigger percentages of uh, consumers in more rich if i may say countries that are more concerned about the environment and the greener future of our uh, families uh, but again cost is probably the most important factor for their decision making uh, something that we could do we by means of uh, let's say po policy makers governments politicians uh, they could do is find the right incentives and the right uh, the right uh, let's say motivation first to let them understand how much they consume what they can do in order to improve uh, their efficiency what they can do in order to save energy and then uh, if it's needed support them with the right financial packets in order to help them to become start from a house i mean it's always easier to start to start from a house or from a shop or from whatever and make that net zero instead of starting from the whole country and trying to make greece or whatever whatever a net zero country so if we find the the right incentives and the right motivation to convince people that you should do that you can take your money back in a few years from now while at the same time uh, you're doing good for you and your friends and the future generations then of course it's a good uh, it's a good way forward do, do you think that it's possible for um the um electric companies to provide the information to the, to their consumers about how their energy uh, is created whether it was uh, created by renewable resources uh, mm -hmm. or from other sources yeah it is it is for example not in greece in the uk but also in other countries i'm sure there are energy retail companies that might cost a bit more for the consumer the tariff might be a bit higher but they guarantee that the energy they are giving you to consume they're offering you to consume it is 100 produced by renewables and there are end users that trust them instead of others, although it's more expensive, because they want to support uh, this kind of uh, green generation, and they want to be part of this. In Greece, we do not have this kind of energy retail companies at this point, because by default, we have uh, a system that is dominated by the public uh, company and some other private retail companies that are producers as well, who, will, who will rely uh, only on gas, but I'm sure that in the future, more and more companies that are act like aggregators, so they represent more and more renewable generation units, they will be uh, participating in the energy market on a daily basis, and they could even deliver electricity to consumers that comes 100% uh, by renewables. We're, we're not that far from that. It, it, this is already the reality in some countries. 
And uh, as we are reaching towards the end of our wonderful uh, conversation, and also uh, a big uh, thank you to all of our to all of our viewers and uh, listeners who who just uh, joined. If uh, you could ask, if if I could ask uh, Lukina and Dimitrios for a, a final comment, a, either a call to action or something that we could be doing today, something that can be done and that is pretty impactful. So we just had the discussion individual uh, slash collective uh, level. Um, so I I'd say as it's like individual watching the discussion sure you can do your part as well like it's it's there are many small things you can do however however i think reading and educating yourself as well uh, like the reports are online so you can go and look at them or speak with your surrounding what is going on what is climate crisis what is happening there how do we understand that is so crucial and important because from the point you, you think about those things then it also starts to change in the move uh, in the first place and then you are able to go and connect with people and act more collectively because if individual could have solved the problem, I guess we would have solved it or it would have not been that much of a struggle. But we see that it has to come on the system overall. So we collectively come up and, uh, and, and think about those questions and think in terms of solutions as well, I think it's, it's definitely crucial. And you can be part of it, um, whoever you are, because uh, you are thinking you're human part of society so um that's that's possible and also don't forget that there are different level 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 of responsibilities like there are huge emitters and you are you can be very small in the whole thing and it can be quite overwhelming sometimes and quite like you can feel quite a lot of anxiety i think thinking about those things but connecting make you feel less alone and especially taking action I mean, for me, it was demonstrating on the one hand, uh, but it has been different things as well, like really speak and, and, and inform myself. It's very powerful, I think, uh, in terms of action you can do, uh, on a, maybe on a broad scale, but also very locally uh, where you live. Yes, and thank you so much for having me. I think that on top of what uh, Lukina said, which of course I agree with, I think that if we have nowadays a, a big uh, buzzword, a big trend, which is green energy and green future, of course, the second term that we hear on a daily basis everywhere, regardless of the industry, is big data, right? Data. There's a lot of data being generated, being consumed, being produced anywhere by different equipment, different people, different industries, whatever. I think that the wisest uh, thing we could do right now is to take advantage of all this information that is around there, try to, to correlate things with each other, try to understand things uh, in a more thorough way, and try to, instead of only using data for different business, like data-driven business cases, data-driven business anything, try to uh, translate data in actions, either it's policy, if it's regulation, if it's new laws, or if it's new incentives, new tariffs, new new solutions in general that could first raise awareness to the end users, to the consumers, help them to understand what exactly is happening, help them to understand not only with, uh, you know, big, bold titles that the global, uh, uh, the, uh, the earth is being hit, we have a problem, we will all die. No, this is not the right way to do things. Explain what is the problem, how we came here, what we can do in order to fix that, how long it will take, because I'm, I'm sure that a lot of people even nowadays believe that if we change our behavior 
only in 2020, which actually happened because of COVID, but if we change our behavior in one year, automatically we are back in, in a perfect condition like it was 200 years back, and that's, that's it, problems fixed. If you let them know that if we start fixing things nowadays, we will be in a better position in 40 years from now, <laughs> because that's how, uh, how much it can take, then they will understand that there are things and actions that need to be taken and um, do something in this direction. So thank, thank you both for this uh, wonderful dialogue. Um, as, a, as a small uh, recap, at the beginning, we discussed about uh, fossil fuels. We discussed the, the current state of, of the world, both in, in terms of technology and in terms of um, governmental uh, policy. We talked about the technical barriers of shifting towards a fully distributed uh, power grid that is um, backed by renewable uh, energy. And then at the second part of our dialogue, we um, talked about the decarbonization actions in which we can not only create a less uh, greenhouse gas, but also see whether uh, technology about capturing uh, these gases uh, is possible. Uh, it comes with uh, both uh, advantages and disadvantages. Uh, I think it, it uh, addresses the core of our human be behavior because it somehow takes the responsibility of uh, the individuals uh, because uh, if there is uh, such a technology and it's still debatable whether it can work at scale, um, it could send the wrong message that you can emit uh, as much as you want since we have this kind of technology which, which as a philosophy is not uh, sustainable. And then at the end, we uh, discussed about the responsibility both on, on the side of the governments and uh, from the side of the individuals because uh, on the bottom to top uh, approach, if we as individuals uh, be our best selves, either by um, reading between the lines and um, create meaningful insights from the data that we have around. And we have uh, lots of uh, data information around. We can create a whole that is working better and towards a, a cleaner future. So thank you. Thank you both. The Global Sapers uh, Hub of Thessaloniki um, is really honored to, to have you. And for our viewers and listeners, uh, don't forget to follow us on social for uh, more uh, information. Thank so, you very much for the invitation, Andreas, thank to be honest. Thank you. Thank you Have a wonderful you. rest of the day. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye. 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 Thank you for listening until the end. Make sure to find us at Global Shapers Thessaloniki Hub on Facebook, Instagram and LinkedIn to stay up to date to our current and new projects. Also, find us at www.globalshaperstessaloniki.org.